0: I'd like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land upon which this recording takes place the gubby gubby people of southeast queensland i honor their continuing connection to land sea and sky as well as their elders past present and emerging hey there welcome back to the men's sex and pleasure podcast this is episode number 172 i'm your host cam fraser we're talking all things masculinity, sexuality, male bodies, and men's experiences of pleasure. And today, I have the pleasure of welcoming my brother, Callum, to the podcast. He and I are doing something a little bit different today. I'm going to be talking to him about a historical figure. His name is Giles Brindley, and we're doing a bit of a history comedy-type podcast genre episode today. I'll explain more in the actual episode itself, but just wanted to make sure that I fully disclose here that a lot of the story that I share about Giles Brindley comes from a book called Shattered Nerves by Victor Chase and also a academic journal article that was written for a memorandum of Giles Brinley. So I'll put those sources in the show notes for you to check out in their um, full capacity. But Callum and I just had a bit of fun with this episode and uh, we're planning on doing more of these, maybe once every couple of weeks, perhaps once a month, where we'll share a story about an interesting figure that relates to the overall theme of the podcast men sexuality and pleasure so hopefully you find this entertaining interesting and uh, and enjoy listening because i certainly enjoyed chatting to my brother in this way so yeah we'll play it and i hope you enjoy This might be a good time to describe what sexual intercourse is, so you can understand some of the things we're talking about.
1: At very special times, they like to hold each other close. God made their bodies so they fit together in a wonderful way.
0: At one of those special love times, the sperm from the man's body can go into the woman's body. And in spite of her piety, he sometimes desires the more
1: solid comfort of her husband Pierre's cup.
0: And the way that I want to start... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> the way we want to start is by welcoming you, mate. You know, Thank uh, you very much. I want to I uh, want to give you an opportunity to introduce yourself because you've of course not been on the podcast before, although we've had many conversations about getting you onto the podcast at some stage. We weren't sure uh, mate, what that was going many, to do. Like. Too
2: many too too many,
0: I know. Well, for those listening and those who don't know, you, do you want to just give yourself just like a little introduction?
2: Like who uh, are you? Day, guys. What do you do? Oh. Who am I? Well, I am Callum, your Little big brother, currently living over here in Melbourne as a coffee roaster, so
1: never ends,
2: let's just say. (laughs) no rest for the wicked. Yeah, just happy to be here. Thanks for having me on, mate.
0: No, I'm excited, Ben, and we're doing something a little bit different today, which is inspired by you, actually. The, The thing I want to do today is kind of based on an introduction that you gave to me to a podcast called
2: The Dollop. With Uh Dave
0: Anthony and Gareth Reynolds. Are those the guys? Gareth Reynolds, yeah.
2: Yep. Two American comedians just having an absolute laugh, I must say.
0: Yeah, it was a great listen. I recall one of the episodes which you shared with me first, which was with, and for the life of me, I can't remember his name, but it was that (laughs) scientist who did the studies with dolphins.
2: with With dolphins, and then, yeah, ended up one of his research. Like students ended up having a relationship with a dolphin, yeah, have so like with it for like four months yeah. or something like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah like stimulating dolphins, like yeah, cook yeah. stuff. <laughs> yeah, and <laughs> there was some, I, I think right up I think he
0: was doing right? doing stuff with LSD as well, wasn't he? I think he was doing stuff
2: with. Uh, yes, yeah, I think it was. Yes, yeah, so I think it was back in yeah the late sixties or something like that. Heist of LSD. Yeah, and I think he was taking it a lot himself.
0: And uh, did you know that they, they got into a bit of hot water, that podcast, those two guys? No, I didn't. Yeah. They, there was a bit of criticism for them around plagiarism for some of the stories. Oh. Apparently some of the stories <laughs> okay. that they would share with each other were pulled directly from other people's writing. So they oh, did a bit without of an apology credit credit
2: or anything yeah, like without that. Giving it. Oh, yeah, well. Wow.
0: Apparently they, they did in the show notes, but that it wasn't, wasn't done well enough to some people's standards. So I, I found that out when I, I had to research the names of Dave Anthony yeah, and Gareth go. Reynolds, but nevertheless, still a great podcast and go. a big inspiration for this. The other inspiration for this is something else that I glad, got onto glad. after, after you put me onto the dollop was a, a podcast called Behind yeah. the Bastards with Sophie Ray Lichterman and Robert Evans, who's the host, which is a fantastic podcast. It's been running for about five years. Robert Evans actually used to be one of the head writers at, do you remember the, the website called Cracked?
2: Yeah, I love Cracked, man.
0: Yeah, yeah. And they did like the listicles bring, bring with like back. interesting comedic yeah stuff. Yeah, yeah. so he was one yeah. of the writers there. And so he does this Behind the Bastards podcast where he talks about like the bastards of history, right? All the, all the worst yeah, men nice. that you've ever heard of. So that's quite, quite interesting. And it's got, got a lot of people out there, I bet. <laughs> yeah. Coming from crack as well, it's quite comedic. So hopefully yeah, I can nice. do that inspiration justice and talk a little bit about sure another, will, brother. another interesting person in a somewhat interesting and comedic way. And, you know, this is kind of that comedy history genre of podcasting that we're venturing into. So yeah. Hopefully we can do that justice. Mate, and... looking forward to
2: diving then head first with you.
0: Amazing dude. Well, yeah, the, <laughs> the name of the podcast is Men, Sex and Pleasure. And and I've hopefully chosen someone today to to talk about, right? To to discuss, who I think is pretty relevant to the okay. men and sex part of the title. So yep. he's super interesting to me and I'm I'm keen to okay. like explore him. Like researching about his life was was fascinating. He's he's kind of been uh, yeah definitely of, worn a lot of different hats. So the guy that I'm talking about. Well, actually, who do you, who do you reckon it is? I know you had a couple of lists in your, um, in your mind. Nah, mate,
2: that I was, <laughs> I didn't know there was like a prerequisite. You are doing men, sex, health, and <laughs> pleasure. I was gone off the absolute radar there, brother. So You're I, <laughs> I had <have> no idea. <laughs> yeah, Cool. <laughs> so cool. please, please enlighten me.
0: Well, his name is Giles Brindley. Have you ever heard of Giles Brindley before? <laughs> I have not heard of Giles Brindley. Okay. Well, Giles Brindley. And <laughs> Brindley, Brindley, And how good the name is Giles, by the way?
2: Oh mate, have you seen Bucket the Vampire Slayer? We love a bit of Giles. So,
0: okay. So where do you reckon Giles is from? England. Yeah. hundred percent. You can't okay. have a name like Giles <laughs> I mean, and not be from Giles. the UK. Yeah. So, so Giles is known affectionately as the grand grandfather of neural prosthesis. And he is a world-renowned figure in the research and innovation of visual neuroscience, neural stimulators, and urology, in addition to achieving prowess in musical engineering and also athletics. So that is to say that he is a physiologist, a musicologist, a composer, an orienteer, and a medal-winning master's athlete.
2: Wow. That's that's all I can say. Kudos. Yeah. I mean, He's yeah. had a full life? <laughs> that's yeah. He's. I mean, what else? Come on. He's. That's like page one by the sounds. Yeah.
0: Of... Well, you're gonna you're gonna you're gonna get a few stories here because the guys are very interesting, man. So, Giles was born on the 30th of April, 1926, in Woking, Surrey, to Arthur okay. James Skye and Margaret Beatrice Marion. He came from humble beginnings, and when he was only four, his father actually left the family, leaving his mother to support the household by herself. Being medically trained, her work comprised of ad hoc locums and assistantships, which required her to move locations quite a lot. In 1933, though, she established a general practice in a disused doctor's surgery in Leightonstone. And the takings of her first week were just 19 shillings and sixpence
2: Wow are right, you so 1933 wow. yeah think... uh, you lived
0: in the UK for a bit do you so know where... like a billionaire back then yeah do you know where Leighton stone is or do you know where well
2: I know where Leighton is because I've, I've been there but i mean, okay cool Leighton stone could be anywhere brother well, Peaky, just anyway. around the it's just around the, it from, right <laughs> just around the corner from just around the
0: corner from Leighton because of his mother's work, oh, Giles was was first sent to boarding school at Combecote School in Dartmouth for from the ages of about four to seven years old, and he seldom saw his mother during this time. He then moved yeah. from his boarding school to Elson House, a Leightonstone private school, and then to Leighton County High School for Boys. He managed to see more of his mother during this time as she had settled into a general practice by then. In 1939, right. because of World War II, the Layton County hmm. High School was evacuated to the Essex town of Brentwood, and Brindley opted to cycle around 120 miles each week to commute back and forth from his home in Laytonstone. He Not did bad. his first research. Here's how <laughs> we start to see like who he was as a, as a person. This came through really yeah, young. Yeah, okay. So Brindley did his first research while he was still at school developing a volumetric analysis for cuprous chloride and its solubility in organic solvents, All right? So he was doing this in high school, right? And I've got no idea what six of those words mean. So he's already- no. Yeah, working, your guess
2: is as good as mine.
0: Fucking <laughs> smarter than, than I am. He was also well is he, known is he like for
2: 13 doing this.
0: Or? Well, in, in 1939, <laughs> yes, he would have been 13 years old. Yeah. Um, yes, yeah,
2: there you go. Yeah.
0: Yes, from, from <laughs> around the ages of like 13 oh. to 17 when he was in high school. What were we um, doing at
2: 13, Cam? Playing Pokemon, I, was I bet Yeah. Playing
0: with my dick, <laughs> man.
2: <laughs> I still
0: am. <laughs> Welcome to the podcast, brother. So Giles was, (laughs) he was also known for his musical talent and in his youth, he would buy cheap secondhand instruments in junk shops. And one of the things that he did when he was young was he would, he converted his first high pitched flute into a low pitched one. So he kind of had this, (laughs) you know, (laughs) this like. Ingenuity, engineering, kind of musical influence. And he was also riding a lot, right? 120 miles a week. He was doing a lot of riding. So you kind of of see a little bit of that, like, (laughs) yeah, yeah, right. So a little bit of that, like engineer (laughs) and a little bit of that, like athlete coming through in his early days and it, and it, it follows through throughout the rest of his life, which is really fascinating. So in 1944. Margaret, his mother, married a solicitor and persuaded Giles, her son, to take his surname Brinley. And that's why we get Ch- Giles Sky Brinley. Sky being his father's original surname and Brinley his surname. You know
2: what? Not a bad name. Surname. I'll give strong name.
0: It's a strong name.
2: It's a strong name. Giles. We love him.
0: Yeah, Brinley studied natural sciences at Downing College, Cambridge with a county major award, participating in early research involving... A histochemical test for carbolic anhydrase. So again, you know, words and make no sense to say? I think I flunked chemistry when I was in high school and I definitely didn't pursue it. Can't into, say I've um, done Yeah, look. Into my undergraduate studies, that's for sure.
2: <laughs> Can't say I did any natural science at all. No. <laughs> Well, natural body, human science. The humans, sure. the, 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 yeah. well, he, he
0: was very good at what he did because he attained a first class degree and an open scholarship to the London Hospital Clinical School. And it's here that Brinley first published a scientific paper. And this is interesting. He It was about the okay. scintillation of stars. So he actually wrote a letter to Nature Magazine or, or Nature Academic Journal about the scintillation of yeah. stars. So he's like... Just being interested in wow. you know, what looks like chemistry and music, and then he's like, "Yeah, you know yeah. What, fuck it. I'm going to write a paper about like, the stars."
2: What can I do now?
0: Yeah, like, totally. Let's
2: let's leave this Earth and let's let's look beyond.
0: Oh, he left the Earth, all right, and, <laughs> yeah,
2: and he like, was never there in the first
0: place. <laughs> and he. And this would be a bit of a theme for for jazz as well. Is like just pursuing what it is that interests okay. him. So once he became That's medically okay. qualified, Brinley had. Firmly decided that research rather than clinical practice was for him, right? So he wanted to go down that route of research and engineering and and innovation. And so he pursued a grant from the UK Medical Research Council to return to Cambridge as a physiologist in 1951. There he made good use of his knowledge of Russian, because he also learned Russian when he was young, by offering himself to the British Abstract of Medical Sciences to write abstracts of Russian physiological papers when he had a bit of spare time.
2: What better way to to use your spare time, right?
0: (laughs) As you do. You love that. You know what I'm, (laughs) what I'm, what I always see? You know what if you jump on Wikipedia and you see like a, Mm. you jump onto the profile page of a historical person from like anywhere from like a hundred years ago and later, and you always see like Mm. this person was like a, you know, physician, a poet, an anthropologist, yeah, like yeah, a botanist. Yeah. And they've got like 20 different like, like professions, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And then you go to like people today and they're like, so-and-so was an author. It's like
2: two things. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. exactly. Was, was a good person. Was a good bloke. Um, yeah. So yeah. About it's, it. It. it's just fascinating. Yeah. That
0: like people were just able to, well, not everyone, but like rich folks were able to pursue like just their interests and, and become.
2: Yeah, you know, definitely. Renowned man. in
0: all these fields of, of study. I just find that really interesting
2: compared yeah. to today we well, locked back in. Back in the nineteen yeah, nineteen twenties, nineteen thirties, we didn't have all these distractions like we have nowadays. And yeah, that's true. Add that with having the money to back yourself to do all those things. Mate, fuck it. If I had that opportunity, I would pursue as many things as I could as well.
0: <laughs> well, in nineteen fifty two. Yeah. In 1952, Brindley was inducted into the Ratio Club, a small British informal dining club of young psychiatrists, psychologists, physiologists, mathematicians, and engineers who met to discuss issues in cybernetics. The club was the most intellectually powerful and influential cybernetics group in the UK at the time, and many of its members went on to become extremely prominent scientists. And here's this. So, for example, another member of the Ratio Club was Alan Turing, universally regarded as one of the fathers of both computer science and artificial intelligence. You might recall the name yeah, Alan Turing yeah. from the movie where Benedict Cumberpatch plays him. Can't say.
2: I've seen the film,
0: to be honest with you. You're, you're my go-to for movies. How do you not know I know. know this? Oh,
2: oh, I know. What, what film is it?
0: I believe it's called... Not nah, shit I don't know should have put that in the script man but the the yeah, the, the, you know what the I, would have the whole, I what did what I, I was relying on you. I was like my script here just says rely <laughs> on cal for this
2: shit <laughs> I let I let the podcast down guys guys I'm well, sorry
0: the well Alan Turing is very well known for many things one of the things is known as the Turing test which was developed
2: by oh, him shit, essentially where he the decoding the like the Nazi like secret codes during the second world war yes That's yes. that thing that's, uh, that's yes. that yes okay. yes and, so um, i can't remember what the film's called but i do i have heard of it yeah
0: yeah it's probably just called turing because it's just about him but to yeah uh, to, to speak very, very briefly about the turing test is from what i understand a way to determine whether an artificial intelligence that you're speaking to is a human or artificial intelligence right so it's like this idea oh wow of, okay if if this artificial intelligence can fool you into thinking that it's a real person, then it passes the Turing test. That's kind of the, the premise behind oh, it. Oh shit. Um, wow. Yeah. So, and that, a that whole scary. idea of the Turing <laughs> test is, have, you've seen the movie X Machina, right? Yes. Right. So that movie is, yes, is yes, based yes. on the Turing test.
2: Oh, wow. God, that, that movie makes so much more sense now.
0: Yeah. The whole, the whole principle, right? I'm, I'm Thank, trying you. To, Thank you.
2: Thank you. i trying to like
0: convince him that, that, that she's, you know, has, has intelligence or has, has human emotions. Yeah. Anyway, I digress. So yes. like super, super prestigious club that Alan Turing was a part of, yes. which hopefully gives Great you mind. some sort of, some sort of indication of how prestigious this club was. And Giles yeah, Vroomy wow. was in there as well. Good old Giles.
2: The boy. The, the boy, boy, our
0: boy. Yeah, that's right. So a year after his return to Cambridge as a physiologist, he took up Royal Air Force or RAF national service because he had previously been exempt from war duty because he was a medical student. So obviously, with World War Two, they had the conscription in the Priory, UK, but because yeah. he was a medical student, and I think if you did engineering, too valuable, some other, yeah, he was too valuable. If you if you had yeah. a profession that they needed you to do at home, then you didn't have to go to war. He. Trained in Lancashire, so when he was with the RAF, he trained in Lancashire. Worked as a unit okay. medical officer in Norfolk, then conducted research at Farnborough at the RAF Institute of Aviation Medicine, and this is where he developed aviation clothing. So, ah, uh, okay, yeah, that's what he started. He started doing like he was interested in like air ventilation for aviation yeah. clothes, and so then
2: this is his new new project that he's like, okay, this is what I want to pursue now.
0: Well, yes, that was his new thing. Yeah. And that didn't last very yeah, really long yeah. because he then turned his attention to investigating aspects of aviation-related human vision, yielding several publications, oh, right? Dude. So he was, he was hey. interested in yeah. the, the visual side of things. He, and he published several cool. papers before returning to Cambridge as a demonstrator in 1954. Now, I, I didn't know what a demonstrator was in the university context, but yeah. a demonstrator is someone who is completing their postgraduate studies. So maybe they're completing their PhD and they lead yep. practical sessions for undergraduates. So students who are completing like a, a uh, bachelor okay. degree. Yeah. And they, it's usually in chemistry and in engineering and a few of those those sciences. And it's to mm. ensure that the undergraduate students understand like the techniques that are being used as well as like how to follow protocol okay. and safety guidelines. And it's typically a, a requirement for your PhD studies that you go and be a demonstrator. So this is what he did um, in 1954. I believe he did that for about two or three years, but in 1958... Do you
2: think they still do that nowadays?
1: Yes, they do. Yeah. That's, I I had to find out
0: what a demonstrator was. And so I went onto the Cambridge website and they still, it's still part of your, your studies as a PhD student. That's awesome. Just
2: for kind of those, like.
0: Did yeah, like it was for, for chemistry and for engineering was the ones that I could find. Yeah. But I, I believe it's probably for a few more. I didn't do a a deep dive into being a demonstrator. So but I, I so imagine like there's, get lost in
2: that as well. <laughs> I imagine
0: there's more there. In nineteen fifty eight, Brinley married Lucy Dunk Bennell, with whom he okay. played in a string quartet throughout their four year marriage. All right. So there's a music. Love that. Through. Love uh, that. Brindley became a research fellow at King's College, Cambridge, and soon after became a university lecturer. So he's completed his PhD. Now he's gone into university lecturing. During this period, his research was devoted almost entirely to vision, and it varied from investigating color vision to the interaction of light and electricity when stimulating the eye, right? So this is kind of where he he gets his first big, I suppose, inspiration is through the the study of vision. And it's important to note here that Brinley was a firm believer that an experimenter should be subject to the same procedures that they expect their participants to be a part of.
2: Okay. Yeah.
0: So because of that, Brinley has conducted many dramatic experiments (laughs) on his own body. One such experiment conducted in 1959 was inspired by the fact that birds are known to have color filters in front of their retinas but humans do not. So this led Brinley to cool. wonder whether various wavelengths of light would be perceived differently from behind the eye than they are from in front of the oh, eye. And okay. What better way <laughs> what better way to ask this question, <laughs> what he <bit> reasoned, <laughs> than to shine various colors of light onto the back of his own eyeball? So, oh, oh, God.
2: <laughs> How does he do it, Cam? Tell well, <laughs> when, when
0: asked if this required removing his eyeball from its socket, he laughingly replied, oh no, you don't need to do that. You only need to turn the eye as far as you can to one side and put a light guide into the conjunctival sac, right? The sac separating the eyelid yep. from the eye, yep. it, which yep. is where our tears come from, right? You, you can get the light round the back of the eye through the conjunctival sac and no open surgery is required, he said. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, spoiler alert, yep. when he did that, there's, <laughs> there's no, there's no difference. We see the light the same way. So he did all of that oh, to find out that, that, that it doesn't have a, a difference on the way that oh, we perceive light. Oh, the Giles. He's cool, <laughs> well, he's, he put his theory to test and, you know, the, he, he proved the null hypothesis. In damn. yet another visual experiment conducted the following year. So 1960, he pushed things a little bit further. This time he wanted to learn about oh, the position sensing ability of the eye. So to do this, he enlisted the help of a okay. colleague who, after anaesthetizing his conjunctival sac, actually seized his eyeball with a forcep. And Brinley oh. recalls that he then grasped my eye with forceps and pulled it about. And I didn't know in which direction he was moving it. And that's the chief finding on passive movement is that when your eyeball has been anaesthetized wow. and someone moves it around, you actually don't know which direction it's moving you can't in. You tell. Yeah, you cannot tell. So, and yeah. we're all
2: thankful for that knowledge. Uh, Thank yeah, you. We, we, someone <laughs> had to do <laughs> and it. <that> image. <laughs> yeah.
0: Brinley was made a wow. fellow of, I know, I know. It, it pains me to even think about it. Yep. He was He was made a fellow of Trinity College, Cambridge in 1962. So you know, a couple of years after he's doing these experiments, uh, he was obviously doing something right to become a fellow. That summer, he then traveled to Baltimore, having been offered okay. the, the chair of physiology there in Baltimore. Although he, he inevitably declined this position, the journey was otherwise fruitful in that Brinley met his soon-to-be second wife, Hilary Richards. And upon returning back to Britain, right. Brinley promptly left Lucy and married Hilary. So that was their four-year string oh quartet marriage done. And and then he married Hilary, who, to Gone. his credit, he was married to until she passed in 2011. So that was a pretty long marriage wow. from from 1962
2: onwards. Do you think... There was the smallest violin playing in the background in that string section.
0: Yeah. <laughs> that's a great, that's a great joke, man. That, that deserves more. Thank you. Thank you. That deserves you, some, you. I'm, that deserves I'm some here, canned laughter. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Thanks guys. I'm done. I'm out of here. Thanks for having me. <laughs> well,
0: as you can, as you can probably imagine, just based on what we've talked about already, Brinley was very rarely conventional and he would quickly dispel today's dull perception of a laboratory scientist on many occasions. He recalls one particular experiment from his Cambridge days that was published as a communication, which was concerned with recovery of balance after a sudden change of direction in animals. Yeah. So Brinley right. did, did quite a bit of animal testing. So not great. No, um, no
2: dolphins here, man. If no, awesome. n- no. Uh. This, well, this
0: story is about, about a <laughs> rabbit, but he did do a lot of testing on, okay. on monkeys as well, So, which is half yep. of the course for the neural prosthesis and you know, neurology kind of field of research. Yeah, okay. But, yep. um, but we don't want to go too deep into that. That's not what this podcast no. is about. But I, I will share this story. So, for this, for this particular study about recovery of balance after a sudden change of direction in animals, Brin, Brinley and his wife, Hillary. With a live rabbit in a box, drove to a disused runway at Duxford Aerodrome. And Hillary would drive along the edge of the main runway and then suddenly swerve the car into a circular orbit. And a few seconds okay. later, the bottom of the box would open up and Brindley would take photographs of the rabbit as it fell, like from inside the box to the to to like the seat of the car. And <laughs> yeah. Hillary- and so Hillary had to maintain this speed of 32 kilometers an hour whilst going around in, you know, a donut. So she's just doing
2: um, dollies. Yeah, doing dollies. <laughs> yeah, <he's laughs> yeah. Taking photos. Yeah. So that
0: they could get the, the sufficient <laughs> wow. gravitational forces necessary for the experiment, but not so much that yep. they overturned the car, right? Sure. And yeah, and, 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 and needless to say, they did find that, you know, that, that that particular change of direction, that sudden change of direction did have an impact on recovery of balance, that the, the rabbit was fucked. It couldn't. Um, it couldn't get its. Balance. I think
2: a- anything. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm so... i think any animal or person. Yeah. yeah, yeah.
0: But it gives you a. It gives you a bit of a an insight into like, they're just doing things, right? It's the wild, wild west I, out here. They're just it, fucking. Yeah. they're going. Why they're going not, for there's an unused lulled, aerodrome. Let's just go city there.
2: There's <laughs> the it, Wild Wild West, brother. Let's take some photos. Yeah.
0: Um, <laughs> oh, here's this, here's this. wasteland. Speaking of speaking of jokes and getting canned laughter. Shifting gears a bit here. Grinley <laughs> became fascinated with the idea of neural prosthesis in 1964, while reading about the work of neurosurgeons who experimentally stimulated the brains of awake patients. Brindley was intrigued by the fact that while both here neurosurgeons stimulated the visual cortex, their descriptions of their patients' experiences and the conclusions they drew differed. So he was like super fascinated by like, oh, they're doing the same experiment, but for some reason they're mm. having different results, like different. what's going on here. Yeah. And and he particularly thought that there was one person who was doing it correctly and he agreed with the results they were getting. And there was one person who was doing it incorrectly and he disagreed with their So results. he was just biased. So, well, he was like, well, I agree with these people. I'm going to go and do this and see whose results are correct. So not one to hesitate. Brindley quickly set about building a system that would stimulate points on the visual cortex. And so he was able to obtain support for this effort in the amount of about 900 pounds, or at the time it was 1,500 US dollars from Cambridge University Physiology Department. I did a calculation and that's about 20 grand today. So that's wow. what he was, what okay. he was granted to, to help do this research. Yeah. And this actually became his first non RAF applied work, right? So when he was doing the testing okay. with the rabbit yeah. in the car, yeah. it was obviously yeah. to try and yeah. help with pilots, right? And people that are that are in aviation. Yeah. So now he's like branching out and he's, he stepped away from the, the air force.
2: No, this. I want to do it. This is for me. <laughs> yeah. Actually,
0: very much so, yes. So yeah. over the next few years, Brinley single-handedly invented an 81-electrode prosthesis, which stimulated areas of the visual cortex. So this is kind of like a, a, a wow. thing that sits on your head, right? Like it it, it sits on your head and yeah. it gets like, like implanted. A professor,
2: professor X. Yeah, but, element, but much Dalia. less yeah. <laughs> sleek.
0: This thing is yeah. um, more
2: sinister, less <laughs> yeah, sleek. Very sinister, yeah. And this thing gets
0: like, and because it's stimulating the cortex, it get you have electrodes implanted in your brain. So there's, there's things that are actually going into into your brain. So so it's pretty hectic. And remember, this is in an era before medical devices became dominated by multinational corporations. So Brinley was just making these in his back bedroom. He was just like in his backyard, in his bedroom, just like making it like just tinkering, right? And building these things. Makeshift. Yeah, Yeah, totally. Just, just bootlegging it. We Uh, love that. Yeah. (laughs) And so so he spent- So he spent several years making this and he implanted the first one in 1967 to a nurse at Cambridge University. She was blind. And after she had this, this 81 electrode prosthesis implanted, she could see spots of light and she actually visually read Braille through, but it wasn't amazing. And she still found being able to tactile read was still quite, was still quicker for us. It was, it was still more, more practical for her to do that. So, you know, right. not necessarily a success by any means, Yeah. but, but future research in the field of neural would go on to say that Brindley's investigation of visual, of a visual implants like this, this prosthesis had yeah. more influence on the profession than any prior event because it had broken numerous barriers, such as no the, shit. such as the taboo of implanting the brain that hadn't really been done too much before. Yeah. And then also considering that the nurse had the electrodes implanted in her brain for ten years, it oh, also wow. proved that the body would accept such a device for a long period yeah, of time
2: and not and, like yeah yes. repel it like yeah, yeah. A,
0: exactly and that the and that the device itself would survive. So wow. Okay. So yeah, he was he was a, a pioneer yeah. in in visual prosthet- prosthetics. Wow. Yeah, that's fascinating, right? Yeah, mental man. That's mental. And, and so because of this work that he was doing, Bridley was soon after awarded fellowship of the Royal Society on the 18th of March, 1965. And that's a pretty big deal. So the Royal Society okay. is like one of the most prestigious societies in the UK and only 52 new fellows are elected each year from the UK. So he was one of the 52 people that were elected into it yeah. for the work that he was doing in 1965. So yeah, real for, for, for our, our Royal Stands... Right? That's like a, it's like a big deal for them. <laughs> yeah, for all
2: you fans out there, he's a good fellow. Yes. Yeah. And so yeah. not, yeah, not well.
0: forgetting about his passion for music, in 1968, he invented the logical bassoon, which is an instrument with its linkages converted from mechanical to electrical, resulting in its becoming far easier to play, especially the high notes but he he actually never marketed this. Wow. He just did this for his own shits and giggles, essentially.
2: Uh, yeah, was, uh, I'm just going to fuck around. I'm just going to do, do it. Well, he, <laughs>
0: yeah. he, he, he was interviewed about why he did this, and partly because he's really passionate about music, and he plays the, <laughs> why, he play, <laughs> he plays the manual bassoon, but he was getting older, right? So this is 1968. <laughs> cool, he's, yeah. he's about 40, 44 now, and, and his fingers weren't working like they used to when he was younger. So he, yeah. he, he created something that was easier for him to play. I've actually got a little video of you him go. playing this, our boy playing this, and we can get your first visual of Giles There's Brinley. There's a video of
2: him. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. I've been playing God. this from
0: the, from the BBC. Yeah. So it's Buckle in black and guys. white, of course. I'm going to play this for you and we can have a bit of a, a listen to, to Giles Brinley play the logical bassoon. That's our boy. That's Giles. I don't know who this joker is.
2: OK. OK. Definitely looks like a job.
1: To play a bassoon, the hands must range over more than six feet of the instrument to the 24 note holes spread along its length. Mechanical levers help by stopping series of note holes simultaneously, but it's still very difficult to play. With the logical bassoon, all the keys are grouped together so that the hands don't travel more than 12 inches. The stopping of the note holes along the length of the bassoon is done inside with electronic circuits. The keys are really electric switches. When a note is played, a circuit recognizes the pattern of switches being pressed and directs the current to electromagnets placed over each note hole. When activated, the magnets stop the note holes and the appropriate sound is produced. The electric circuits are used only for stopping the note holes. They don't amplify or affect the quality of the sound. Like the ordinary bassoon, the logical bassoon is a woodwind instrument. It sounds the same, but because of its new fingerboard, it's as easy to play as a recorder. High notes, almost difficult to reach on a traditional bassoon, can be played easily and rapidly. Same tune, traditional instrument. bassoon may not look as good, but it can reach notes and speeds that have never come out of a bassoon before. Perhaps this fact alone will one day elevate it to the star solo position in the front row of the orchestra. Oh, we're just gonna fucking stop it there.
0: But there's like a bit where Old Mate, who we don't know, is like mm-hmm. trying to trying to play a particular high note sequence and he like yep he kind of messes it up. You would have heard it like in there, like he kind of like. Yeah. Yeah. And then an Giles just
2: comes in and he's like. Yeah. And like, and like <laughs> nails it. And he kind
0: of, and that's the, that's like the skit bit where he's just like laughing at he him. Like, looks, yeah, looks
2: at him. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
0: yeah. All, right, all right. I'll stop that share. But that's, okay. our, so that's Abul Giles. Respect. Just absolutely now. shredding the logical pursuit. Yeah. And okay. So that was what he was, that was what he was interested in, right? In, in his music. But yeah, he was wow. also, in addition to this, he was an avid orienteer, and so for those who don't know what orienteering is, it is a family-friendly sport in which runners have to find their way across rough country with the of aid yeah, of yeah, just yeah. a map and a compass, well, right? To... So yeah, yes. yeah, yeah, yeah. We've done something similar to orienteering, yeah. I remember doing right?
2: that like year six, year six camp and shit like that. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Yeah, I don't
0: think I was, don't think I was running. I think I was like I was
2: leisurely walking. Thank you very <laughs> much. Yeah. <laughs>
0: i was I was definitely not running. that's for sure. Well, Brindley and his wife Hillary, and their young children, John and Emma, were actually members of Slow, which is the South London Orienteers. And he and Hillary actually retired from Orienteering in the year two thousand. and on their retirement, they made a financial donation to Slow, with which the club purchased a trophy for the British Knights Championships. So they were like a big part of that community of Orienteers in the South of London and they, so much so that they they donated and now they have a trophy that's named after them, which is really, really lovely. Anyway, we'll go back to the Medical Research Council, right? So back to his, what he's more more known for, I suppose. So the Medical Research Council actually founded the Neurological Prosthesis Unit in London in 1968. So Brinley moved back to London to set up the unit and accept the chair of physiology position at the Institute of Psychiatry in 1969. No. It's here where he turned his attention to spinal nerve stimulation techniques, right? So he's gone from the uh, eyes to the spine and he specifically okay, yep. wanted to, to look at like walking and bladder control in patients with spinal cord injury. Yeah. Now this time around, right? Cause if you remember his visual, his visual prosthesis <laughs> was not super yep. successful. So this time he wanted yeah. to make sure that his innovation would be successful. So he spent the next eight years in the laboratory perfecting the concept and also conducting animal tests. This is where he was testing on monkeys and shit of like that. So not of great course. stuff, but, but nevertheless, we'll, we'll move on from that. So in one of his academic journal articles, which was published during this time, this is a 1974 publication. Yep. There's a thanks at the bottom of the page, which are given to the volunteer subjects for their fortitude and collaboration.
2: Oh cool. god. <laughs> uh, of course
0: Brinley was one of these subjects as well, right? As we as <laughs> we know first he likes experiment. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like a little he's bit of a, every list. Yeah. He's a bit of a sadist. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so and the reason why there was special thanks done on this particular publication was with respect to the often painful maximal contraction of the external urethral sphincter caused by stimulation of the pudendal nerves. So for the layman listening, I had to, you know, unpack what that is. What that's doing is they're sending, they're sending electrical signals to your pelvis muscles, right? To contract them as tightly as they can. Right. So, you know, when you, when you go to the toilet and you try and stop yourself from going to the toilet by like pinching those, those pelvic muscles. Well, they're doing that with electrical impulses that are being sent from electrodes okay. and like contracting as hard as they can. So not the nicest feeling in the world. And no. so everyone got a special thanks for
2: that. Yeah. <laughs> thanks, guys. Yeah. I'm <laughs> putting up with it. Oh my God. Oh. How's your perineum after that, mate? Yeah.
0: Ah. <laughs> you're gonna be you're gonna be walking <laughs> bow
2: legged for a week after that for sure, man. That would be painful. <laughs> mate, sign me up. Let's go. Yeah.
0: <laughs> well, in, in <laughs> 1978, he actually implanted the completed prosthesis. So you remember he took eight years to make this. He finally perfected yep. it. And so he implanted the completed prosthesis into several people, a couple of which, a couple of his first you know, patients were soldiers who had been paralyzed by battle-related injuries. But they found that activating the electronic system embedded into their bodies was actually, it ended up being much less practical than just putting their braces on. So it wasn't as successful as it wanted to be. Again, though, Brinley's invention set precedent that was taken up by other researchers. Yeah, yes, as future developments of that particular system that was implanted into those soldiers would be used eventually successfully as neural prosthetics for paraplegic and quadriplegic patients.
2: I mean, I guess you got to start somewhere, right?
0: Yeah, and so this is what Brinley did. He would essentially create whole new fields of implant technology, and then just kind of like leave. Leave the perfection to others. He's like, i well, he to- yeah. <laughs> yeah, I've started this whole new field of research, and I'm just going to go do my next thing.
2: He he pushed the snowball, and he was like, "I'm going to go build another one and push that one now. Let's go." Yeah,
0: totally. And he was waiting for yeah, other people to, to to pick up where he left off. During this time, I though, wonder if he, he like- even if he knew. Yeah, well, I'm, I I believe he's still alive, and I'll I'll get to that um oh, a bit shit. later. Oh Okay, yeah, okay, yeah, yeah so one one invention during this time that was actually hugely successful was his sacral anterior stimulator so this is a three channel device primarily used okay. to enable paralyzed patients to urinate right to to weep regularly yep. and completely right without the need for catheter catheterization right so if you're yeah. you're paralyzed you've got to get a catheter put in so that you can you can actually avoid. So that's what he created it yep. for. And that's what it was primarily used for. However, and this is where we get maybe more into the the topic of my podcast, right? The loose theme of the podcast. Okay. As a bonus yep. side effect, Brindley found that he could use <laughs> the same device to, to not only induce bowel movements, as I just said, but also yep. Yep. for men that had paralysis, he was able to activate the stimulator and produce erections. So he was able to give wow, okay. men in All right. wheelchairs erections. Yeah. So like I said, this device was hugely successful. Yeah, it was yeah. actually commercialized in 1982 by Fine Tech, a British general engineering company, and it was actually sold as the Fine Tech Brinley bladder control system. Uh, there you go. Uh, around this same time, Brinley also commercialized another invention, which was an electrically activated neural prosthetic device. To enable men with spinal cord injuries to not only get an erection but to also emit
2: semen as well so they could they could oh, ejaculate. Shit. yeah uh, and, and so what it would like stimulate the pros, prostate for these Yep, for these you're 100 100
0: yeah. correct yeah so it was known as the yeah, hypergastric okay. plexus stimulator and so that for, for people that are familiar with the nervous system the hypergastric plexus is what innovates the prostate so you're 100 right mate the the device yeah, yeah. would activate the sympathetic nerve fibers in particular so most of the prostate is parasympathetic fibers in terms of the nervous system yeah. but there are some sympathetic fibers which are necessary for ejaculation and so uh, this device yet yeah, would activate the sympathetic Amazing. nerve fibers supplying the yeah. seminal vesicles and the prostate gland and so so he had this like other device right that he that he commercialized and he would actually use his expertise in electro erection and electro ejaculation activity in paraplegic mm. men to provide a fertility service around England, so he'd actually go and spend a week wow. visiting spinal cord injury units in yeah, various yeah, hospitals yeah. four times a year, and he would go and help collect them their collect the sperm. Collect sperm, yeah, essentially, yeah, and help them, <laughs> yeah. help them, yeah, become fathers. So, yeah, so during this ten, so ten years that this was a commercial Giles, product, this, you're
2: gonna make me cry.
0: Yeah, the se- <laughs> the semen stimulator was implanted in a substantial <laughs> number of men many of whom were able to father wow. children thanks to Brinley's implants. That's pretty amazing. Hey,
2: that's wow. That's incredible.
0: It's cool. And it's cool good, that he, that he did the, that as well. Him. Yeah. And he didn't seem to be too squirmish as, as about a it. Added him.
2: side effect that we love it.
0: Yeah. Right. It was by a, him. it was a, you're right. It was a side effect of this, this device that he created. So because of his efforts, right. And because he was like so active in promoting it and being so hands on with regards to like, you know, going to these spinal injury units because yeah. of this He, the the result of this was that like, there was a widespread uptake of the sacral stimulation prosthesis nationwide. So around the UK, it became very, very popular. And then his, you know, this bladder control system also, also began selling throughout Europe, Australia, New Zealand, and Singapore. In the United States, it was approved for widespread clinical use by the FDA in 1998 and has since been implanted in thousands of patients. Changing very very little from Brinley's original invention over forty years ago. So he did such a good job of this invention that they haven't really had to it's change like it in,
2: in forty plus years. Minimal like change, yeah. Wow, and still using it nowadays.
0: Yes, it was, there's people today that still yeah. still have it, and and fine tech is still a, a around, and they're still doing consultations. So, yeah, crazy that it's uh, he, had, he did such a good job, right? That's so he insane. put his time and effort into it, and and people were like, oh, this is actually really working.
2: And so he was just all that
0: we... in his back shed. Yeah, pretty <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Yeah, in his, in his, in his bloody...
2: back shed. Yeah. In his little dungeon, man, <laughs> just building
0: this stuff like a little mad scientist. And, and and so this is where we get to probably the most notorious event in Brinley's life. And this is at oh, the nineteen oh, 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 oh. Yeah, so here we go. So this is what we're leading oh, up to no. this whole time. His this is what we to. Is, is, up. This, <laughs> this is well, we'll see. We'll see. So in oh, nineteen eighty-three, there was the American Urological Association Conference in Las Vegas. Now, to place this into perspective, prior to nineteen eighty-three, there was very limited knowledge around penile erectile physiology and very limited safe and effective pharmacologic treatments. So we didn't really know too much about how the penis worked. Yeah. And we didn't yeah. really know about like There was no, like Viagra hadn't been invented now by this time. We didn't really know too much about like how medications were impacting erectile health. Didn't know a lot of that. Yeah. Um, Yeah. And to, to, for people that are interested in this, like according to 1983 sex research, the role of penile smooth muscle was not appreciated. At the time it was actually (laughs) thought that like there were cushions around the penile vessels that relaxed to let blood in. And then contracted to trap blood during sexual arousal. That's not how the penis works. Uh, that's people that false. Are interested. Yeah, <laughs> that's what we—that's th- what they thought in, in 1983. the nineteen eighty-three. Yeah, yeah. So but
2: did Giles just come in and blow that theory
0: away? Well, that's that's why he was invited. So the American Urological okay. Association, yeah. through its affiliate program, the Eurodynamics Society, they invited Professor Giles Brinley, who you know this innovative British neurophysiologist, yeah. to quote unquote open their eyes and provide an insightful lecture on the confusing state (laughs) of erectile physiology. So at 7 p.m. on Monday, April 18th, 1983, Brindley was slated to deliver a one-hour lecture entitled Physiology of Erection and Ejaculation. So... There's this big uh, Las Vegas I... conference room.
2: Yep. Right. Crowded with people.
0: <laughs> yeah. oh, Everybody's God. dressed up formally oh, in God. suits and ties. You know, yep. Men and women. Thankfully no children there. And then all of a sudden <laughs> I think it's
2: loud.
0: When, All of a sudden there's this English gentleman wearing his orienteering <laughs> trousers, right? His running his oh, tracksuit no. goes up to the podium and starts his talk. Oh. He begins his talk by discussing rectal stimulation to stimulate erections, similar to what he'd been doing yep. with the sacral anterior stimulator, showing many slides of stages of penile erection from flaccid state to full erect state. Uh, pretty standard, right? For your urologists you'd imagine we'd be pretty pretty familiar of with, you know, what uh, cocks pretty look used like. To, of course. <laughs> to to cock slideshows. So con- continuing with his lecture, Brinley began presenting his, his novel findings. So this is his new research of intracavanosal yep. phenoxybenzamine injection for the production of erection, right? So this is injecting a particular okay. type of, a particular type of vasodilator into the penis to, yeah. to help yep. with the blood flow, to help it get an erection, right? Which at the time hadn't actually been approved by the FDA, right? <laughs> so this say, is like a drug like that had not been approved, like not been came, approved in yeah. America Yeah. So again, he showed many slides of like pre and post injection penis photos. Yeah. Right. So this is what it looks like before and after. And to many attendees surprise, Brinley confirmed that all the photos are actually photos of his own penis.
2: Yeah. Here we go. (laughs)
0: Yeah. And... And according, according to, so he'd obviously experimented on himself, right? And he's like, yeah, this is what it looks like. He's got it, he's got it in
2: him right
0: now. That's why he's got the short shorts on. Well, you you just wait, you just wait. So according, according to attendees, (laughs) according to attendees who recounted the lecture, Brinley received many, many (laughs) questions and comments about his methods. And a lot of the audience were very skeptical and very loud about their skepticism, right? Saying like, you know. (laughs) This isn't even approved by the FDA. This is not real. Like you're faking it. Like this is not, you know, so you un- yes, I'm <laughs> un- unbeknownst to the audience. Brindley had anticipated this skepticism and was set to supplement yeah, his standard slides, slideshow presentation with a demonstration. So, he- oh, of course he he made the point right so he begins by saying that in his view no normal person would find the experience of giving a lecture to a large audience to be erotically stimulating or erection inducing <laughs> and after speaking for a fairly long time he moved to his left turned sideways and arched his back to accentuate a bulge in his shorts he then let everyone in the conference room know that he had previously injected his penis in his hotel room before coming to the lecture with yet another erection-inducing drug known oh, as no. known as papivarin. and and to demonstrate this, he pushed on his penis over his pants to show that it was firmly erect and not easily bent. Right, so he's he's up on stage in his orangey yeah. green pants, just showing off his, fully his talked. erection.
2: Right. <laughs> talked, yes. yeah. Fully taut, yes, fully
0: taut. Oh my god. Okay, so. Uh, upon this demonstration at the end of his presentation, the chairman of the American Urological Association asked Brindley if he would show his penis uncovered, right? So, so this guy's just this going, is, like, Yo, his, drop This him. is all his
2: plan. This is all <laughs> drop, his plan. He's drop like, those yeah. dacks, sir. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> please present so,
0: Brindley, who assumed that the trained urologists in the audience would not be shocked by such a show and tell, was more concerned <laughs> with the possible presence of journalists. Right, it was like, "Fuck, there's journalists here. We're going to get absolutely yeah, from the press." So after he was assured by the chairman that there were no journalists in the audience, somewhat <laughs> yeah, hesitantly, yeah, I'm sure, I'm sure <laughs> Brindley uncovered the full extent of his results to the very amused urologists. So. So several urologists and attendees who were there on that fateful night, they have like since told this story. So several of them recall Brindley hopping down from the stage with his pants around his ankles, walking through no. the aisles, walking no. up to the front row, asking oh the God. audience Get members a to,
2: from everyone. Yeah, yeah. to feel
0: to feel how rigid his penis was to make sure that he wasn't faking it. And and apparently, oh apparently, although several urologists. Did not choose. They were a bit, you know, unheard by the whole thing. They didn't choose to. <laughs> did <not.
2: laughs> there was, yeah.
0: there was very distinctly several urologists who did test the erection by giving it wow. a tap. Who did? Uh, like, yeah. Ah. <laughs> were like, yeah, yeah, I'll, I'll test that. Yeah, good job. <laughs> and yeah, presumably giving him a high five at the same time.
1: Yeah. So you got to remember. So this, is, like in, this like is in this is in
0: 1983, right? So he's he's about he's almost 60 years old here, right? So he's born in 1926. Wow. Is 1983. He's about
2: fifty fifty seven. Got years no old. fucks left.
0: No, not at all. So th- this whole event, right? This whole shenanigans has been actually hailed by numerous urologists as one of the most defining moments in the history of treating erectile dysfunction. And yeah, essentially, the reason why is because without that spectacular tour de force, the process of showing and convincing the urological community would it would of have course. taken like, yeah, would yeah. Have, like, yeah, to, to to show like physically how these vasoactive compounds actually work in the corpora of the penis would have taken years, yeah. if not decades to evolve. Yeah. Right? So he was just like, fucking boom, here's how it's it done, was fellas. just
2: shameless. And he was like, let's, let's get it out on display. Uh, yeah. Wow. So, so because of
0: that, this lecture has actually been dubbed the one hour that forever changed the sexual medicine world. So wow. he absolutely, wow. yeah, you know, has, you know, no interest in erections, right? No interest in like, you know, erectile physiology, just happenstance, you know, his, his device actually had this like, you know, side effect yeah. of producing erections. And he was like, you know what? Fuck it. I'm just going to go you down this let's... road and start experimenting yeah, with, with that. drugs. Yeah. With experimental drugs that haven't been approved for human use yet. I'm just going to put them in my <laughs> <Yes>. dick. <laughs> hey, he's
2: like his bloody penis didn't up or something.
0: Well, well, it's funny that you should say that.
2: Oh, no, don't. Don't <laughs> well, do this to me.
0: There's more. There's more to the story.
2: <laughs> oh, God. I thought that <laughs> was a happy ending right
0: there. Oh, a happy ending. Nice <laughs> Got one. Got his
2: cock out. Oh, no, that's not what... Oh, God.
0: <laughs> well, so he's he's 60 now, right? So in, in his sixth decade, yeah. so after, this, after this, this event, he took up veteran athletics. So we're diverting <laughs> yeah. a little bit away from here, but just, I want to give you a full picture of this guy in okay. his life. So at age 62, he completed the London Marathon in three hours and one minute. And that same year, he also won a bronze medal at the 1987 World Veterans Championships, also known as the World Masters Championships, in the four by 400 meter relay. It's part of a relay team, part of a Masters relay team. And then again, in the 1991 World Veterans Championships, he won silver medals for the God, 2,000 meter, yeah, 2,000 meter <laughs> steeplechase. So he's a steeplechase oh, runner, which tells you all you need to know about him as a yep. person. Yep. steeplechase runners are just fucking cookers. And he also won a silver medal in the 800 meters, as well as another bronze for the four by 400 meter relay. So he's killing just, it,
2: right? As a... And just hard the whole time, I bet you. Just...
0: Yeah, well... You know, you know what's interesting. I found out that a lot of professional NFL players will take Viagra before a game to help with their blood circulation because it gets, especially if it's cold, right? Because that's what Viagra does essentially. It helps with your blood circulation, and so they'll take it to make sure that their blood is oxygenated and they can actually like you know breathe properly even when it's cold and they're they're actually performing well. So and he was pretty much doing this right. This is before Viagra was invented in 1998. Yeah, he was taking like proto Viagra, injecting it directly straight into his cock, straight into so, the
2: the main vein. Yeah. yeah so
0: I, I I imagine that it, one of the side effects would have been like better blood circulation and, and would have been helpful for all of his running. He was I mean, probably. <laughs> it sounds like he was athletic in general, but you know this definitely was right, right back in the day. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, totally. But
2: yeah, he just needed a bit of a stimulant. By the sounds of it. Yeah,
0: yeah. Well, he actually retired as a professor of physiology in 1991 at the age of 65, but he stayed a further year at the Medical Research Council unit before beginning a business with his wife, Hillary. And they started to make oh, medical, okay. you know, of, of course, they made medical devices from their home, right? Of from course. The, it from was, the back, yeah, that's from a no-brainer. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so, and, and the things that he he created with this company, with his wife, included stress incontinence slings artificial tendons, and more spinal cord stimulators. And he made these okay. almost entirely for the NHS with the occasional private purchaser. So he was, he was yeah, it to the, the health system, right? During this time, he also designed an apparatus that is implanted into the scrotum between the testicles. Right. So you you talked about like blowing his, blowing his cock up or blowing his balls up. So rather than being electrically operated, this system consists of a mechanical pump and reservoir that contains the drug sodium nitroprusside, which is used by anesthetists to lower blood pressure and which Brinley had selected because it is an inexpensive chemical and it works well in inducing erections. Now, Brinley had one of these devices implanted in himself in 1992, (laughs) right? Because of course he did.
2: Of course, (laughs) he has to.
0: And from what I could find, right? Because obviously this is not common knowledge. From what I can find though, he was still using it 20 years later to deliver an erection at the push of a button, right? So he has this little button that he presses on in his groin, which is connected to this particular vial of... um, Yeah. And it, and it releases this. So it has like this vial of this drug called sodium nitroprusside, and he presses this mm. button. It releases that into his erectile tissue and it gives him an instantaneous erection. And he was, yeah, so he was.
2: Demental. Yeah. Mental. So
0: here's an, here's an interesting thing as well around this. Cause he was trying to figure out how to get that chemical into the vial. Cause the vial mm. is sewn into his ball sack right like say, yeah, it's, I... it's in you.
2: yeah yeah it's in him. <laughs> yeah. yeah.
0: so so to do that he he couldn't find a particular type of yeah cuz the, the the problem that he had when he was experimenting with this before he injected it into himself was the constant cuz you you have to in, like take a syringe and inject it into the vial when the vial is empty and he found that yeah. constant injections into the the vials that he had already mm. would degrade the material and so the vial would leak right it wouldn't actually hold the the serum in it because he was injecting it so many times so he actually created he created a silicon you know silicon substance silicon polymer that he made this vial out of so that and he so he he tested it like he has this story where he tested it 300 times he just injects it over and over and over again he's like i got to about 300 times i wasn't seeing any damage to the vial so i thought you know what that's it i'm gonna put this in my put it in Let's go, Hillary, <laughs> Let's go. Put it in my
2: nutsack.
0: And uh, and so now and so, so yeah, yeah, so so for the next twenty years, he was just syringing his nutsack with this particular type of this particular type of drug and, yeah, and refilling just, that vial. And just supply, himself, just boom, boom, boom. Yeah, uh, erections at the push of a button, which is pretty wild.
2: At the age of like eighty, yeah, that's crazy.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. So still, yeah, so he used it for the rest of his life, from what I could find. Right, so, so hopefully his balls okay, haven't blown yep. up, but, you know, he's yeah, literally, he was pumping, he was pumping up his dick with, with a particular apparatus, um, so
2: I don't know, I didn't look
0: into this, but I don't, know, I don't know if there was anything to do with sodium nitroproside with it being like non FDA approved, but who, who knows, or well, possibly it was an experimental that drug time. at the time, because okay. that would be yeah. on, on brand for, for Brinley we love it. after, after about 10 years, following the changes in the NHS insurance standards, his business had to close NHS actually changed it so that you had to have more, you had to have like $10 million liability insurance for every single patient that you had. And because he was just yeah, like, well, a little, he was literally like a mom and pop store, right? Yeah, yeah definitely. Out of their, yeah, yeah. Brick running and water, out of their kind of shit. Yeah, yeah. He was like, we couldn't, he's like, we couldn't afford it. So we, they had to close the business but brinley brinley actually followed up with his patients so even though his business was still out of practice like he wasn't operating the business anymore he, he would follow up with his cared. patients yeah. yeah yeah with his with that you know that had all mm. of his prosthesis implanted he had an outpatient clinic at the royal national orthopaedic hospital in stanmore until he was about 70 years old for, so for several years he he welcomed all of his patients to, to yeah, come and wow. visit him yeah i feel like he was he was genuinely concerned and and interested in helping people that had like disabilities, you know, essentially. Like a lot of yeah, his work is definitely is to, yeah. to help folk with disabilities. So I feel like that was like what he was quite passionate about.
2: Yeah. And I guess being that intimate with people, like you you kind of wanna yeah. You'd be quite close to them, I'd I'd assume.
0: Yeah, especially if they're, they're coming to him for like erection yeah. and ejaculation type stuff and he's giving them fertility treatment, you would you'd definitely be doing some vulnerable work with them. So let's yeah. not forget that uh, he was also a composer, right? So within his passion for of music, course, of course.
2: His, he, he did some compositions. <laughs> the
0: logical pursuit. yep. So his compositions yeah. for wind instruments have also accomplished quite a lot of success. For example, he had a composition known as the Tyrolean Suite. Which was a piece that was actually performed at the opening of the British Library, which was actually officially opened by Queen Elizabeth II on the 25th of June 1998. So the Queen's there opening up this wow. beautiful library, and one of Charles Brinley's yep. musical compositions for wind instruments is there accompanying the playing opening
2: in the background.
0: Yeah, totally. And he's also he also composed four variations. Did they know? Yeah, <laughs> do they know what this guy's <laughs> been up to behind the scenes. I I, I I always like wonder if his lives ever crossed over. You know, if someone from the the music sphere knew about him getting his cock out in front yeah. of a bunch of neurologists in America. Yeah,
2: who knows? Maybe that's why the Queen liked it because she was yeah. like, "Yep." Yeah.
0: <laughs> 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 well, he he also had another very well known composition, which was four variations on a theme from Schoenberg's Wind Quintet, Opus 26. So for all our wind quintet (laughs) fans listening, hopefully they know what that is, which was performed at the... Please
2: get into Cam's DMs and let them know what
0: that is. (laughs) So this is a composition that was originally performed at the 2003 Music Through Time concert for the London Consort of Winds, which is a very well-known wind instrumentalist I suppose, group in, in the UK. Yeah. Of course, this means nothing to me, but for obviously the music buffs listening, <laughs> here's what the London Consort of Winds has Brind to say about Brindley's <laughs> composition. So this is what they, they they said about it. This short piece consists of a 16-bar quotation from the second movement of Schoenberg's first strictly serial work, the Quind Quintet, Opus 26, followed by three variations on it. The theme is played three times with different instrumentation, the first being Schoenberg's. The first and third variations are serial and slower than the theme. The second variation is in the same tempo as the theme and is successively in the Phrygian, Lydian, and Aeolian modes. Again, I have no yep, idea what that means. That was, Hopefully someone that was in the audience comments. does. <laughs> <laughs> it was worth it. It was worth it. I, 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 I feel like I should have We played, learned something new. Um, yeah, I feel like I should have put a a very hoity-toity British accent on in order to read that out.
2: Imitate Giles, please.
0: Giles. Yeah. Well, I've never heard him talk. There's no, there's no footage of him talking, so I, I have no idea. He doesn't. I need can to. only imagine. He talks yeah. through his work. <laughs> well, by the London Consort of Winds 2004 summer concert, Brindley's composition would be later renamed the Four Temperaments. That's what it's like officially now known as. And this composition would okay. appear again in the 2005 spring concert, the 2006 spring concert, and then finally in the 2009 autumn concert. So they liked it enough to put it in several of their concerts. And um, yeah, and so he was yeah very well, very well regarded in the composition space. We're going to kind of getting to the end of his life here. So boy, well, the end of his 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 story. Brindley's wife Hillary, she actually passed away in 2011, and he oh, you know succeeded. Strange. She succeeded by two children, and three grandchildren. So the lineage lives on. He is currently, from what I understand, he's still alive, and he is currently studying the origins of falsetto, and he maintains a busy busy music schedule, attending concerts and playing in amateur orchestras and chamber music groups. Like I said, from what I could find, he's still alive, and I actually found a photo of him delivering the opening remarks to a hall full of students for a Cambridge university neuroscience event in 2019. So he's still beguiling people on stage. I don't think he got his cock out for that event. But But he, he's still, he's still, you know, lively, according to, according to the people that attended that particular opening, you know, remark presentation that he gave for, for that event. He's you know still sprightly and it was he was telling say, stories he must, and
2: he's sharp as a tackle, so, pushing a 100 soon or something. Yeah, well, in, in
0: 2019, he would have been he would have been about 94, I think, is if my yeah. math is correct. I don't someone's going to correct me on my math, but I, he would have been in his 90s for sure. Yeah, um, so please he's, someone, um, yeah. So he's nine, I guess, like today, if he's still alive, we're 2023, so so he'd be 97 today if he was still alive, yeah. Wow! And from from what I, I couldn't Fing, find any obituary, so I, I I presume that he's still still kicking it, yes. still still getting directions at the flick Too of a switch, hard, and still going. We yeah, we it love love best it. life.
2: So that's that's wow.
0: Giles, man. That's that's the story of Giles Brinley. Thank
2: you, Giles. We appreciate you. We give you flowers. Well
0: <laughs>
2: done. Is the
0: is the story of Giles Brindley what you're expecting when you jumped on the podcast today?
2: Not in the slightest. But hey, I'm pleasantly surprised.
0: Well, I'm so glad. I'm glad, could, I'm glad I could. Glad I could share a, a story with you. I'm keen to to do this again. I had a lot of fun. I'm I'm you know a couple of beers oh, deep, mate. and I'm I'm going to stick around after this and have a bit of a bit more of a chat with you, man. But that was Please? fun. It was fun to to do a bit of research and to find out about yeah, this guy's you, really man. fascinating life. And I'm excited hey, to. I'm, a, well, I'm glad. I'm glad you did. I'm excited yeah. to to do this again with you and for you to pick someone. So I want to, I want to continue doing this maybe once a month and uh, yeah, like you to pick someone next. Do
2: you have anyone in mind? All right. Please no. don't tell me if you do. I have no idea, brother. Now you've just opened up the floodgate. So just you wait.
0: Amazing. Well, I'm excited for that. And we can go round two into this like expedition Sounds into good. comedy, history, you know, weird genre of podcasting. Sex. Pleasure
2: mental, health, mate. Let's, yeah, go. well, I've
0: got, I, I've I've got, you know, 180 plus episodes and, you know, over 240,000 downloads. Not to, toot but my not to porn, brag, but I'm, but I'm, like, weird, I'm like, it's weird. time to do Wait, something a little okay, different. We, we, the, the formula, the formula's working, you know, the, the, the episodes yeah. are there. You've I, wanted, to I want to branch out. Break the algorithm, yeah. mate. Let's go. That's right. So, so I'm excited to do more of this, man. I, I had a lot of fun and it's just always a pleasure getting to sit down and, and have a chat with you. So I'm glad I uh, can get, get a
2: laugh out of you. Ditto, man. Ditto. Just, yeah, like you say, man, just glad I get to see you. Get to chat to you, mate.
0: Well, I appreciate you joining me, man. Thank you so much. Of course. And, uh, Thanks I for having we'll, me. we I we'll, we'll, we'll have, a, have a chat about the next time that we do this.
2: Let's just decompress what you've just told me, mate. I need to <laughs> process all of that. So thank you. thank you. Thank you. Thank you. No worries, man. Take it easy. I'll talk to you soon. Uh, you too, brother. Cheers.